my friends. Today, Joel is talking to Alex, co-founder and CEO of SecureCo, and they discuss how tools are enabling hackers to find and exploit vulnerabilities more easily than ever before, tips for founders to shift their mindset to build successful sales organizations, and how to not let business decisions be driven by fear. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. I know we're going to talk about SecureCo and what they do, but I was really curious to know what's going on on the dark web. I know very little, and I was hoping you could tell me about it. Yeah, so I, I think what's what's interesting now is the evolution of the hacker industrial complex that's kind of played out over the last, let's say, decade. It's really changed the game for how the security industry, how how businesses respond to cybersecurity. And, you know, just the ways that people used to think about things like, oh, I'm a, you know, why would anyone target me, right? I'm insignificant or I'm, you know, I'm a small business. Maybe I'm like a you know, a solo practitioner doing my own thing. Like, why, why would anyone target me? And the reality is, it's just, there's now like this division of labor of people that find vulnerabilities and then post them on the dark web. And then people who take that one step further in the value chain. And then, you know, people that actually, you know, there are people that build like ransomware software and just sell it. And then somebody else will, will buy that ransomware software and actually perpetrate the attacks. And so there's this entire, there's this entire value chain that starts with you know, stolen data and hacker tools. And then someone will you know, actually buy those pieces and parts and put them together and do an attack. And it's become so automated that you don't really have to know, you don't really have to be this crazy you know, black hat expert, you just have to kind of know one little vertical and you can do some rather damaging things. And and all of this is happening, you know, kind of in that sort of dark web domain, right? Where you can shop around and, and move uh, under a kind of a cloak and dagger uh, anonymous way. And you can pay with anonymous currency. I mean, Bitcoin isn't truly, truly anonymous, but it's really hard to track unless you you have the resources of the FBI. So you can functionally, you know, you can transact, you can shop, uh, you can browse all anonymously, and then use that sort of stealth and obfuscation technologies to perpetrate these attacks so that no one can really trace it to you. And it's a scary environment to operate. I'll give one more anecdote, which is which was just blew my mind, and this is really the the reason why nobody's safe. It used to be that, you know, hackers had to, you know, really target people or businesses based on, you know, some rationale because there was some amount of work that would go into kind of figuring out how to attack them. But now there's software you can download and in 45 minutes you can scan for open ports and vulnerabilities on the entire internet in 45 minutes. And you can gather that data. It'll just spit out a report for you. And so, you know, some people just post that to, you know, to the dark web. But the point is, is that, you know, with that kind of information, you can just kind of be purely opportunistic and just go after whatever comes up. 
in the report. And so those kinds of tools and that kind of information just makes it a very, the internet a very scary place for people and businesses to operate. Yeah. And so have you ever gotten to go on the dark web yourself? I have. Yeah. The reality is, is that there's a lot of benign stuff there too, right? I mean, it's, it's, um, it's not, you know, some people just value privacy and they use the Tor browser, which is kind of the means to access these kind of onion sites, which is what they're called, that are built within that Tor network. And, and, you know, there's just some people that, that are just privacy minded that like to operate there. And indeed, like, I think Amazon and other businesses have set up storefronts in that in those places because they know that that some can, consumers prefer to to browse the internet anonymously and operate in that environment so it's not all you know evil or bad it's just it happens to kind of have this like adverse selection quality of attracting bad people even though privacy in general is a good thing and then do you do something to like fight this with secureco how does that factor into the dark web well, so what we do at SecureCo is we draw on some of the technologies that that hackers use and that, you know, the bad guys on the dark web take advantage of, which is stealth and anonymity. And what we do is we make those tools available to corporate customers, government, industrial customers, so that they can have, they can be armed in the same way that the bad guys are and be able to operate in a way that makes them less vulnerable. So I'll I'll give you an example, right? So if I'm operating, let's say, a nuclear power plant, and um, I have a monitoring channel that I need to monitor the temperature of that power plant's core, right? The information itself isn't particularly interesting, right? It's like, you know, it's a temperature readout. But it's critically important that I'm not uh, that I'm able to re- trust that information and that that information is delivered reliably, right? Well, so encryption of the data alone isn't that protective of it, right? Right? Because well, all, all encryption does is just says, well, okay, no one can tell the fact that it's you know 200 degrees, right? You know, it, the data is coming through, but it you know it, no one can read it. And that's not really what's interesting about it. What's interesting about it is the ability to potentially disrupt it or inject false data or somehow interfere with that data feed. And that, that's what we protect against by making that transition hard, that transmission of data hard to discover and making the endpoints impossible to, or not impossible, but almost impossible to identify as the high value targets that they are, right? So in other words, the hacker won't be able to find that that communication flow, won't be able to identify the source and destination and the identity of those things. So, so they won't know what they're looking at and you can't really target and disrupt what you can't find or, or identify. And so that, you know, being able to use stealth to protect your network, to be able to use stealth and obfuscation, which just basically means confusing your adversaries, to be able to use those tools to protect your business or your organization, you know, why wouldn't you avail yourself of those capabilities if, if you could use them? And these are the things that the bad guys have been using forever, right? Well, like, let's take the nuclear power plant temperature readout. Let's say they don't have your service and then they get it. How intrusive is it or how much work is it to actually put it through your technology versus what it's at right now currently? 
Well, it's, it's kind of, it functions much the way a VPN does. So you just need to have software at both ends of that transmission and it routes it through a network that we host, or we can uh, work with a customer if they want to participate in that network hosting. But it really is just a, a rather quick and simple software implementation at both ends of that transmission flow. What that does is it gets routed in this evasive way that is randomized and continuously refreshing the circuits that it creates, which means that it's really hard for adversaries to be able to track it, identify it, or block it, or reroute it, or you know interfere with it in, in myriad other ways. And are you like the tech brains behind this? Are you like the the business type? part of the technology pair and you've got some really smart person behind the curtain. Yeah, so we, we've got the tech brains are my CTO and, and sort of the founding team that contributed to writing, you know, the first of what we expect to be many patents for this. I co-founded the business with Eric Sakowitz, who's been a kind of a technology leader for, for 25 years running sort of enterprise scale networks and the security associated with them. And, you know, kind of, uh, look, I understand the technology, but I'm not natively a technologist. Yeah, well, it takes everybody. I mean, what good is an amazing piece of technology if you don't have the business side of things to take it to market and then grow it and then make it an even better product? So I, I used to look at it being software engineer. When I was early on and less mature in my career, I was just all about like, oh, you know, this is the most important thing. And then I had built some businesses where I was the tech side of things and I had no idea what was going on the business side of things. And I thought my area was like so incredibly important. And then I saw them making more money (laughs) than me. And I was like, what? All right. So now on this company, I'm like the CEO and I've had to acquire these new skills, right? Of sales and managing different people other than engineers and all of these other marketing concepts as well. I have a whole lot more respect now for the other side of things other than just the creation and improvement of the technology. Yeah, well, there's there's a saying that, you know, everything is sales, right? Even if you're doing technology, you have to convince other people of how important it is, right? So, you know, sales is just such an incredible threat. You got to adapt yourself to a lot of rejection and you have, you have to be inured to that and be able to overcome it. And that's, you know, that's critically important in any kind of business success. Yeah, that actually is something I personally struggled with a lot when I started sales was the amount of rejection. And then I, through necessity, needing money, <laughs> you sort of figure it out, right? And so I just found a way to justify it from my like nerd engineering perspective where I was like, oh, this is a statistics game, right? Like I thought early on that I maybe needed to contact, you know, 25, 50 people, 100 people. And I wasn't getting anything. And I was just like, is this, am I just beating my head against the wall? And I realized I have to contact like tens of thousands of people and I get deals. And I'm completely okay with that. I am 100% okay with the understanding the volume and the rate of response per person contacted. And so that helped me get over it. And then I got to the point where, okay, that's like step one. And then step two is once you get them on calls, then it's even a smaller, it's a small percentage of that, right? It's like 10 to 30% of those qualified calls like close. And so you just get comfortable with the fact that it's a process and you just go with it. But there's a positive and a negative thing that I picked up on. One of the positive things is that success and failure are like incredibly slow, 
right? So you start building this machine and then it gets going and it's like big. It's like, it's hard to stop once it's, you know, getting really big. And so that sort of allowed me to switch from sort of like a jumpy, anxious mindset to more of like a relaxed, okay, certain times of the year we do more sales, certain times we we do less, we go on these patterns, these up and downs. And so that's currently where I'm at right now. I think you you just completely nailed it. it you know, just in terms of, I, I mean, what the only thing I would add to what you just said was there's another factor, which is the volume blunts the effect of of the rejection, right? In the sense that if you're if you have two meetings a week and you get rejected, each of those meetings takes on this incredible amount of importance, right? Because it's like you have all this time to prepare and you're you know, you're trying to get into the right headspace and, you know, it's like, it's like a performance, right? But if you have like 20 meetings a week, (laughs) it's just like, you can't be vested in any one of those meetings success. You just have, you're just cranking through them and you're not necessarily performing worse. In fact, you might be performing better because none of them have this level of, of anxiety associated to them. So, you know, you've removed that element and you're getting a lot more practice. So it's like, you know, there's just so many reasons why that high volume pr- approach that you just described works so much better. Yeah. Getting used to it and going for it. How did you get into all of this anyways? Like you're at SecureCo now, you're one of the co-founders, technology security company, but where did you start? So, yeah, I've been running growth technology companies for 20, 25 years. I actually started off on Wall Street, which is a great boot, professional boot camp, but it's not for everyone. It's, you know, kind of 100 plus hour weeks and you just, yeah, there's a high burnout rate. And, you know, you really, really have to love the money to be able to put up with that kind of strain. So I, I went to business school, was a, a, a Wharton MBA and then went, you know, flirted with the the media industry at the time. But the media industry, with the jobs that I got were all about like the digital frontier, right? Like the interaction of, of media with digital and investing in startups that were sort of digital media startups. And so I ended up getting just going whole hog into running digital companies of one type or another, they were all focused in ge- generally on, you know, it transitioned from media to social media and social networking. And the business that we were at right before SecureCo started was a company called Peerstream, which operated live video communication, the suite of applications that connected people around the world. In 180 countries, we had almost half a billion end users. And interestingly, we became a freedom of speech platform in places like the Middle East and Asia. What happened is that became a lightning rod for nation-state-sponsored attacks on our our service. And they were trying to take down our our network and and identify our end users so they could do bad things to them, right? (laughs) So we had to develop this military-grade cybersecurity to be able to defend that network, maintain uptime, preserve the anonymity of our end users, and be able to make our feed, our data connections look like something other than they were so they could penetrate through these nation state firewalls because they were trying to block our, our service. And so 
we developed this technology that, you know, all of these cybersecurity capabilities, and we realized, wait a minute, these would be valuable for lots of different companies. And so let's externalize this. And, you know, sort of just the way AWS was created at, at Amazon out of just, you know, like, hey, look, we're creating these huge data centers. Why don't we lease out this capacity? We kind of we kind of externalized this capability from embedded within our product to be a enterprise software solution. We landed a big deal, but ultimately it made more sense to separate the company out. So we bought out the IP, the assets, the team, and launched it as SecureCo in 2020. And, you know, we're a venture-backed company and really starting to get traction, particularly in government and critical infrastructure and increasingly in finance and healthcare. Nice. Yeah. Shout out to Florida Funders. That's how we got connected and met That's each right. other. Florida Funders has uh, been very supportive. They're a great team and really helpful to our business. And they're smart business people. I think I've been with them for like four years now. And they've just grown like crazy as far as being a venture business and they're expanding. So I thought that was pretty cool because you have these people that you're giving money to that are making investments. And at the same time, they're growing their business. So you can tell that these people aren't just throwing money at stuff. They actually understand how to grow businesses. And I think that's pretty sweet. Absolutely. Yeah. We've gotten a lot of great, not just capital, but great advice. Oh, yeah. I want to talk about leadership stuff. So a lot of the reason why people listen to this podcast is because they're trying to grow and improve in their careers. You've managed large teams of technologists in all sorts of ways. Even you said a lot of startups, those are high pressure, difficult things. If I were to ask you what the most important aspect of leadership is, what would you say? Well, I think it's you have to surround yourself with great people, right? Because the art of management is being able to find people that can execute and scale what you would want done in a way that is at the level that you would have executed it or better. <laughs> and so, you know, you need to find people who, and, and, you know, that's not always hard in the sense that it's like, well, if I'm, you know, if I'm going to hire a developer, I know that like, they're going to be a better developer than I would be, right? I'm not a developer, but you know, you want the, you want the best people you can find. And, I mean, it sounds harsh, but there's a, a saying that I heard when I was in business school from a panel of these leaders of, of dot-com companies, is what they were called back when I was in business school. And the saying was, no one's ever fired someone too soon. In other words, if they're going to be fired, everybody waits too long, right? Managers always wait too long to let people go. And it's unfair to those people that are bound to be let go because the second that that thought enters your mind as a manager, that person is a, you know, a dead man walking or a dead woman walking and they have no future at your company. If you think you're, you know, by giving them a stay of, of execution for a couple months that you're doing them a favor, like that's a couple months that they would have been investing in another career path that, or another company that, that, you know, is aligned with their future success. And so, you know, not only is it unfair to them, it's unfair to, you know, to your business, right? And yet it's just a really, you know, the opportunity cost of having the right person in that role is very high. It's just, you know, kind of like conflict avoidance or, or inertia that keeps people from making the right decision on those 
you know, important HR matters. Yeah, I think most of it's the conflict avoidance. Like, I think people don't, they don't like that. I personally didn't like it and I had, I had avoided it. And then when you're a founder and it's your money or you're growing your team and there's just no opportunity, like you have to have success. Like the outcome it becomes so important that that allows you to get the you know confidence like this is what needs to happen. And after I got used to it, what I learned was it's actually really beneficial for the person you're letting go. And the reason is, is because you know, typically if you're going to let somebody go, you've had some interactions with them. They have an idea that they're not, you know, stepping up and being where they need to be. But then when you actually do let them go, they have a moment of reflection. Like there was a time in my life when I was not great. And then I kept like screwing up and making mistakes. I lost opportunities. I made big mistakes. And, and then I just said, I don't want to be that person anymore. And so there was just, you know, a moment in my life where I was just like, I'm going to just change. And I did. But if if people would have like strung me along, right? Or used too much of kid gloves with me, it wouldn't have been so obvious. It would it would have taken longer. I think if the first person, if the first time it happened, they would have come down like a hammer, I might have had that wake-up call on time one versus it being like three or four times. I, that's a great point. I mean, I, I think like we tend to have a very kind of zoom lens approach to the way we look at our lives. In other words, we're focused on the here and now in the moment. Getting fired feels terrible. And it's like the worst thing that ever happened to you, whatever. Like, And if you widen that aperture and you look at kind of the arc of your life and your career, it is the moments of failure, if you want to call it that, where you learn the most and where you evolve as a person uh, you become more mature. You just understand how the world works uh, in a in a in a more clear-eyed way. And like you said, it's it's actually like it doesn't feel like it's going to be a beneficial thing for you, but it you know it may uh, like it, it, in that kind of arc of your life net out to the positive in a quite significant way. Absolutely, and we're speeding up in progress too, right? Obviously, business has been around since people have been trading, but the fidelity of the information, you know, being able to have conversations like this with people all over the world, the amount of resources and educational material, we're learning what works better because nobody ever got fired for doing an excellent job, having a great personality and working well with their team members and connecting the value of what they're doing to the value in the marketplace so that there's a sync between the market and, and what you're doing. No one got fired for doing those three things well. <laughs> yeah. You, you get fired for doing other stupid stuff. And then you realize, what are the things I, I need to do? Who do I need to emulate? How do I need to act? And then you find out you know, common traits. When, when I got really frustrated in that moment of my life, I bought three books. They were like the biographies of three different billionaires. And I was like, I could take a business class. I could do all of that. They'll teach me how to do spreadsheets. But I need to understand how these successful people think. And there's lots of gurus and stuff, but I just went with the billionaires because I was like, that's a safe bet. <laughs> and then I started to get into that and understand how they think. And I, I gleaned a lot from their life stories and their childhoods. And then I got into like the whole sales training and Tony Robbins life management and Jim Rohn. He's like one of my favorite. He's this like motivational guy in the 70s. And he's just, they took all his content because he's not alive anymore. And they just put it all on YouTube for free. So you can go listen to this like amazing content. But the examples are hilarious because he's talking about like selling phone books and printers. <laughs> I got to check that out. Yeah, yeah. I think the other thing is you have to think of getting fired in the same way that you think of like when you're interviewing for a job, like are you the right 
person for that job. And there could be lots of reasons why you're an outstanding person, but just not a good fit, right? And, you know, like you can think about getting fired as being sort of being re-interviewed for a job and being determined that you're no longer the right candidate for that job, right? And that doesn't mean you're a bad professional. It just means you're not the right professional, and so I think people take it incredibly personally and, and get like really bat- bruised egos over it. But like the reality is you have to think of it as like if I were interviewing for 10 jobs and I got rejected from nine of them, but I got that one, like I wouldn't feel so bad. I'd be like, OK, I got the one job. That's what I need. Right. You know, yet like being rejected from the job that you're at feels really terrible. You know, some of it is like about your attitude. Like I, I was a I was involved in a merger, you know, when I was kind of in more junior in my career where, you know, I felt like one group of people that I happened to be in were the second class citizens. And I just had a terrible attitude. Right. You know, and it, it, it colored my work. And, you know, it's like, was I a bad professional? No, but I probably wasn't a great employee. I ended up leaving on my own accord. But if I hadn't, you know, maybe I would have gotten let go. Who knows? Right. It just you know, there's just so many reasons other than you're not worthy that that kind of thing happens. Yeah. And going around and giving talks to your point, like I see a lot of people, I'd say most people, like if you had to do the, you know, Pareto 80, 20 thing, I'd say 80% of the people don't care enough when they're looking for a job. I mean, they want the job and they care if they want the job, but they're not sitting around thinking like, what am I really curious about? What sort of interest do I have? Am I really into video games? And should I go work at like a video game company or learn skills there? Or, you know, what am I into? And then having this sort of interest and then working in areas of their interest, I feel a lot of people just click apply to every single like a hundred times a day on you know job searching sites versus you know saying you know what industry is growing really fast and what am I interested in and then let me write a letter to the CEO of like the top 10 companies that I think like a personal letter research each company it sounds simple it's like oh that's easy you know most people won't respond to you but you'll probably get one or two because that stands out to them because most people won't do that and often people say, you know, it sounds too good to be true or it's too easy. I've done things like this and I had success with them. It's partly, you know, how I got people on my podcast early is one way I used it. But I think that people don't put enough effort into where they're actually going to spend half their lives, the work that they're going to be doing. And then people will stay places when they're unhappy. And I'm like, what are you doing? Like, <laughs> Yeah, and they're making just the decisions, but again, on a very sort of short-term basis. Like, you know, I'm going to take this job because it pays $5,000 or $10,000 more. You know, maybe it has a better title. And again, like if you're looking at the kind of long view, those are, you know, factors in the decision, but shouldn't really drive the decision. I, you know, I, when I was in the investment banking world where you have many bosses, right? You're working for this partner, you're working for that partner. The crazy part was I found that some of these partners that are incredibly smart and you learn technical things from them. And then there were some that were just kind of more relationship people. And I always felt like, oh, the smart technical people were the right people to work for. But they micromanaged me. And it was a big deal if you you know, made a punctuation error in a presentation. And then I worked for this one guy who I thought was kind of like, you know, he was non-technical. And so he brought me into a room and he's like, with all of these like gray hairs, you know, and I'm this like 25 year old kid. 
And he's like, Alex is the expert on all the technical stuff. Alex, take it away. Which never would have happened with the technical partners. And it was like, I was thrown into the deep end of the pool. And it was such an incredibly valuable experience to be presenting to the, you know, these board members of, of this big company that I, I just wouldn't have gotten that opportunity. So you have to look at it at the lens of like, what's going to give you the right exposure What's going to give you the right level of responsibility or the right, you know, the most responsibility that you can handle? And, you know, the, the $5,000, like, you know, that'll come, right? That, you know, that, that kind of gap, it shouldn't be the principal drivers of your decision because what you're, what you're trying to do is get up a certain professional maturity curve. Yeah. Dude, you got a lot of leadership knowledge there. <laughs> Well, I made a lot of mistakes, <laughs> and uh, you know, I mean, you know, in the course of a of a of a career, you you step on some landmines, and then you know, you know, you, you get a little bit of wisdom from it. Any uh, particular books or people that you follow that stand out? Gosh, you know, there's some classics that I think are worth everyone's reading. I think Good to Great is one of my you know kind of favorite favorite business books because it really focuses on this notion that. It's, it's a team effort that most businesses that succeed aren't because of like one brilliant genius, right? I, you know, there are those examples and everybody focuses on that, like, you know, Steve Jobs. But the businesses that have been most successful just have like these certain practices that the author identifies that are systematic and common amongst great companies. And that like, that's really inspiring because it, you know, as a leader, like you think, well, geez, like maybe I'm not the next Steve, Steve Jobs. Can I create a great company? It's like, absolutely, yes, you can. In fact, most great companies were really built by people who just put in place a bunch of really good practices and built teams and, you know, kind of got a success flywheel going. And you can study those and learn from them. Yes, I early on made a decision to base everything on the rules of the successful versus the exceptions. So as you mentioned, a lot of people are exception-based in life, and rightfully so. It's probably built into us biologically because we pay attention to the one that's out of line, right? The different one. But uh, I made the decision to focus on, you know, what are the common traits of the people who've had success? And then how can I slowly get there and play it like a long game? Yeah, that's critically important and a, and a great observation. I mean, look, and I think the other thing is, you know, I'm a person who sort of tends to overanalyze and overthink things. And, you know, look, so many of our decisions, and if, and if you've read like the Tony Robbins of the world, like so many of our decisions are sort of driven by, by like fear, right? <laughs> you know, and it's like, it's like, I don't want to fall on my face. I don't want to be revealed to be an imposter. So I'm not going to stick my neck out and do that thing that has like what you're weighing is the benefits that can come from some public speaking thing that you're doing or, or giving an investor a pitch. The benefits that could come from that are really tangible and measurable and, and real. The downside of failure is, is sort of hurt feelings, right? You know, and it's like, why would you ever let the hurt feelings drive that, that decision you got to get over the hurt feelings, right? You got to just steel yourself against those things. And it just opens up a world of opportunity. Oh, yeah. The way I do that is I ask myself if it'll matter in 10 years. Will this event that's happening matter in 10 years? 
nope. All right, then I shouldn't be upset about it. If it can affect my life in a meaningful way in 10 years, then I should probably work through it a little bit more, you know? That's a great filter. I, I'm, I should use that. Yeah, it's untested. Like, <laughs> I haven't been doing it for 10 years, but like it works. It helps me because I tend to be a little bit anxious too, right? And I think it kind of comes with the job because people, their families rely on us having the business and like that's a lot, right? There's so many little things that go right and so many little things that go wrong. The amount of volume that a company leader sees, whether it's a CTO, CMO, CEO, at that C-suite level, you're seeing an insane amount of things going wrong and right. And so I just had to come up with a framework of how to deal with it so that I could sleep at night. And I don't even know where I heard it. I heard somebody say it, like, if it'll matter in 10 years, and I just picked that up and it's just stuck. Yeah, well, look, I think one of the things when you're at a, a small company or a startup, like, you know, there are a lot of clarifying things. Like you said, if you have a limited single digit number of employees or whatever, you can't have people on the team that aren't producing, right? So it's like big companies can let that slide. Little companies can't, right? And, you know, there are other things that are just very clarifying, which is I have to be able to fail because like, it's just part of this enterprise that I'm pursuing. It's like, I can't do everything right. Like I'm taking on too much. Things are going to get you left undone. Deadlines are going to be missed. You know, opportunities are going to be lost. It's part of the deal. And as long as you capture some of the opportunities and hit some of those deadlines, you know, you can't be perfect, right? You can't go for perfection. It really is, you know, the enemy of the good when you're running a small business. And you have to develop a comfort with, you know, having a to-do list that is forever growing. You can never clear out your email inbox. That's just the way it is. Like if you're OCD about those things, forget it. (laughs) Oh yeah, I've definitely gotten good at what is the most important thing that I have to do today. Like there's a hundred things I could do, but what's the thing that like needs to be done today? And often for me, that goes back to improving the product or being charge and building and hiring around making the product better and then increasing sales. And it's just like product sales, product sales, and just constantly spending my time in those areas. And it's awesome because when I'm in sales, like when I'm doing that part, like whether it's, you know, improving the sales deck or whatnot, I feel so comfortable with the fact that I'm spending my time there or like on 20 sales calls a week or whatnot. I'm okay with that. Like it's okay And then when I'm in production and making the product better, I just make sure I have like great people there that want to make it better. And I sort of like help organize it because I can't spend like too much time there because I have to keep making sure that the sales happens until the company get. We're only 15 people now. But like when the company gets bigger, you'll be able to hire dedicated people to focus on each one of those areas as like a C-level type person. But we're getting there. Yeah, you asked about authors or influencers that I'd recommend. So recently I heard on another podcast that uh, I won't mention them, a interview with a guy named Oliver Berkman. And this guy had written a time management book, which I thought was sort of really kind of a turns, turns traditional wisdom on its head, which is forget about trying to tackle everything on your list. If you're doing that, you're spending time on a lot of trivial things right? It's the actual opposite of what you should try to do. You really need to apply this importance filter above all else and like deliberately leave things undone because those things that are, don't hit the filter that are, it's satisfying to check them off, right? You know, maybe like, 
you know, maybe there's a squeaky wheel asking you for something unimportant. But, you know, if you're just kind of checking off uh, uh, little trivial administrative items at the expense of what's really important, then you are actively undermining yourself. And so, so it's like, it's, you know, most time management is about how to get the most done. And this is like really about what turns it on its head. It's like, actually, you should be deliberately not doing a lot of things and focus on just what's important. Yes, absolutely. Dude, I think that's a good like mic drop moment. But we definitely need to let people know if they want to learn more about Securico and how they can you know, improve their sensitive data flow, what would they do? So come to secureco.com, reach out to us at info at secureco.io. We'd love to talk to you. We, we serve uh, enterprises of all scale and, uh, and uh, government and industrial clients as well. It's really all about creating the most secure network connections possible way uh, more advanced than typical VPN capabilities, way more secure, offering sort of privacy, confidentiality, and business continuity at a higher level. And we're working with some of the most demanding cybersecurity customers in the world, including U.S. military and intelligence customers who you know, really sort of set the bar for cybersecurity. So, you know, in this environment where it's no longer a kid in their basement hacking your business, but it's actually China and they're intent on stealing your IP or trying to gain leverage one way or another to try to dominate your industry. Like, look, you can't just use uh, basic off-the-shelf solutions or be complacent anymore about cybersecurity. The stakes are too high and the costs of breach are frankly, quantifiable and awful. So, you know, what we can do is do a quick demo and then, you know, proof of concept and show that our performance is as good or better than what you're accustomed to. And the costs are not meaningfully higher than, you know, the the market alternatives. Why wouldn't you go for the strongest security available if it doesn't cost you a whole lot more and you can sleep well at night? Perfect. Awesome. So secureco.io. Yeah, secureco.com, secureco.io. They can find us on the web and love to hear from your audience. Well, thank you so much, Alex, for doing this. I had a fantastic time, man. We made a podcast. Awesome. Thank you, Joel. Enjoyed being a part of this and great to chat. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.